Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I would like to look at a poem by Tracy K. Smith, the uh, American poet, actually the American poet laureate, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, and author of several collections of poetry, including the 2018 collection Wade in the Water. And the poem I want to look at this week is from that collection. So let's wade in. Let's wade straight in, in fact. I'm just going to give you the first bit. I'm going to tell you, this poem really has haunted me since I first read it. So, see what you think. Oh, I should warn you that you are thrown in at the at the deep end somewhat in this poem. So hold on to your hats, because when it first starts, you think, well, um, uh, what's going on? It's going to be fine. If those mowers were each to stop at the whim, say, of a greedy thought, and then the one off to the left were to let his arm float up, stirring the air with that wide, slow, underwater gesture, meaning, hello, and you there, aimed at the one more than a mile away to the right. I'm going to stop it there. So... That first line, I mean, we really are straight in there, aren't we? If those mowers were each to stop. Um, what? What mowers? So all we know is there are, there are mowers in the first line, uh, multiple mowers. And if they were each to stop. So if those mowers were each to stop, we begin with an if. And this poem is a poem about if, about what if this happened and there's a there's a brief snatch of reality right there in that first line those mowers were each to stop if that happened and it's gone everything else is speculation what if this happened so the the mowers it seems we don't know that they were actually ever there but let's say the speaker is suggesting there are really two mowers and then she's going to take them on something of a flight of fancy. And the line ends, stop, if those mowers were each to stop. And that, when they stop, really, that's when reality ends. And the rest is, is the, the if that takes over. I guess what the speaker is saying is, let's stop what is happening and consider an imagined version of events. And both mowers stop at the whim, say, of a greedy thought. Now, I don't know what they're mowing, but if they are more than a mile away from each other, it seems like an enormous expanse of, I don't know, I assume grass, but maybe there are mowers that do all sorts of uh, crops and whatever. Anyway... They stop simultaneously in the speaker's imagination. And uh, what's the motivation for their stopping? It's, it's a, a greedy thought. Now, what does that mean? Well, I suppose if there's two people mowing the same enormous patch, a greedy thought might be looking up to check that the other one is working as hard as you are. You know that suspicion that takes you over when you're on the front seat of a tandem. Always that worry about whether there's enough happening over your shoulder. 
So that's one possibility. I like the idea that the greedy thought is a bit nobler than that. And I want to sort of expand just briefly to another poet and another poem just to suggest what I mean. Many of you, well, some of you, will know Walt Whitman's 1855 collection, Leaves of Grass, and it begins with uh, very famous lines. I'm going to quote from it now. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. So it's about people being joined in some way, about people being one, even though he celebrates himself, he's saying we're all part of this big self. So it's not so much about what we now call me time, perhaps as, as we time, or it's probably both of those things intermingled in the Whitman poem. And I think in this poem by Tracy K. Smith, there is a sense of never mind the work, what about us? Two guys doing the same job a mile apart. They share that bond, at least. Let's acknowledge it, is what they seem to suddenly say, or the poet is making them say. As, as Whitman put it, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. So we are kind of the same. And that, I think, could be the greedy thought. A thought about myself and ourself rather than about the responsibilities of the job in hand. And the speaker in this poem uses her imagined version of events to, to stop the work and start the communion between these two men and as I say they stop simultaneously so in the world of the poem Smith imposes the connection straight away she's not hanging around here and what about that wave that the first mower does wide slow underwater gesture that's how it's described a wide slow underwater gesture and underwater is so clever because you can feel that the timing of it, the way limbs move through water, the way they're slowed down, it, it gives us the swirl of it in that image, the sort of lazy pace of this wave, which I suppose is the opposite of, of toil and getting on with things. And work I, I can remove us from ourselves and from each other, I suppose, and, and uh, for example, that quote from Whitman, I don't want to overdo the Whitman, but once I get into reading Whitman, it's, um, I promise this will be the last quote. This is how it continues, that opening of Leaves of Grass. I loaf and invite my soul. So I loaf, I, I just be and that and invite my soul. I suppose that's how I really find who I am. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. So that contrast of work and not work is in this Tracy K. Smith poem, but very subtly expressed, and it's not a straightforward 
as you might think. Maybe, now bear with me on this, I know sometimes you think I go too far, but maybe the wave is an underwater gesture because it's so primal, it's so unevolved, so basic, you know, two people communicating like that. And underwater because, yes, yes, because we come from the water originally. These guys have have stopped their machines, their man-made machines, and they are sharing a deep moment. And I think in this initial part, it's that we're encouraged to think about work and what it does to people and what it how it separates you from yourself and from other people, maybe. There's a W.H. Davis poem, which some people think is a corny old poem, but I still think the first stanza is is brilliant, and I've quoted it many times. The poem is called Leisure, and this is how it begins. What is this life if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare. And it's a, a celebration of like that Whitman thing, just just loafing and the importance of it and, and the, the glory of it, if you like. Mind you, W.H. Davis also said, and I quote, teetotalers lack the sympathy and generosity of men that drink. Forgive me the non-inclusive language, but he was around a while back. Teetotalers lack the sympathy and generosity of men that drink. I am currently a teetotaler and have been a very heavy drinker, and I think he's probably right. So the mile between these two mowers uh, seems to shrink. The wave connects them. But remember, this is happening, I'm going to say it again, it's happening in the poet's mind. It's her if. Maybe, I have no evidence of this, that she actually saw two mowers mowing an enormous patch of land. And, you know, they were, as you'd expect, focused, industrious, and probably totally oblivious of each other. And uh, maybe, and it's a maybe, she decided to flip their priorities for the purposes of this poem. It's her imagination that's connecting them and that and halting the industry that's going on. But it's interesting, isn't it? This is her poem and her world, and she could have done what she damn well liked with it. She could have just made all this happen. She could have just said there were two mowers and one stopped and blah, blah, blah. Not what if. And it's as if she wants to say, well, it's actually like that, but it could be like this. And that's why she's telling us that her version is is imagined. So this wave, this amazing underwater gesture, it seems so natural that the first mower, he doesn't even raise his arm to wave. As she puts it, he just let his arm float up, stirring the air. It's effortless. It's just happening. It's instinctive the way perhaps mowing isn't. And it's what we do when we can do what we like, I suppose. When we, when we let ourselves happen. Oh, my God, that was... <laughs> sorry, that was very self-help. But try and forgive. You know what I mean 
when we let ourselves happen, when we just be, I think it's about that. I mean, it's a wordless communication, this big underwater gesture. The poet, the speaker says that it means hello and you there. It seems to mean a lot more than that. It seems to be at a place beyond words, really, like I say, unevolved, primal, people connecting at the most, you know, they're a mile apart. There's there's no little winks and gestures and words. It's, 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 it's much, much deeper than that. Then begins a giant sentence, which I think is about 22 lines or, or something. But poetry is like eating an elephant, one mouthful at a time. So let's hear the next, uh, what I'm calling the next bit. And this is now speaking of the second mower. And if he, in his work, were to pause, catching that call by sheer wish and send back his own slow one arm dance, meaning yes and here, as if threaded to a single long nerve, before remembering his tool and shearing another message into the earth, letting who can say how long graze past until another thought, or just the need to know, might make him stop and look up again at the other, raising his arm as if to say something like, still, and oh, and then to catch the flicker of joy rise up along those other legs and flare into another bright yes that sways a moment in the darkening air. Beautiful stuff. But I, that was a big mouthful, to be fair. And um, I'm, I'm going to break it down for you. So the second mower catches the silent call of the other by sheer wish. I'm not sure whose sheer wish it is. Does the first mower want to communicate so much that he wishes and wills the second mower to stop and, and look in his direction? Or is it the sheer wish of the second mower who wants to be communicated with? I don't know, but it feels quite mystical, this simultaneous stopping and, and looking up. And I think the sheer wish, um, probably like the greedy thought, is a probably deep, instinctive, barely conscious thing. Just that sense that someone is there and someone is is communicating with you. Now, the wide, slow underwater gesture here becomes a slow, one-armed dance. And that's quite a thing to impose on this dance sort of in a way the opposite of work although there is work involved but it's a real state of mind isn't it dance a celebratory state of mind and that's what this wave this responding wave is described as and it says i'm about i think i'm about to quote whitman again but anyway it says they communicate as if threaded to a single long 
nerve. Remember that Whitman thing, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. But they are threaded to a single long nerve. These two men a mile apart mowing this field. It's an incredible sense of human beings communing. I think they celebrate a, a, a sort of a brotherhood of self beyond toil. Now, that is what happens to my language when I read too much Whitman. I'm getting carried away here, forgive me. But they share the connection. And then there's this bit where the, the second mower, I quote, remembering his tool and shearing another message into the earth. So he's having this moment with the, with the first guy and then he returns to his work and to his tool and, and to the shearing job. It's very different, isn't it, from the one-armed dance that says yes and here. This message, presumably a different message, when it says another message being sheared into the earth, and with a tool, so no direct contact. And like I say, it's, it seems to be a different message from the wave because it's done with a tool. It involves shearing and shortening and the timing of the natural and what's happened is that this mower seems to have turned back to his job. And now, instead of that fabulous primal communication, again, it's about work and money and responsibility and consequences and all the things that jobs involve. So that happens for a bit, letting who can say how long graze past. So time is grazing moving at its natural pace, it grazes as he shears. So it's sort of like nature's rhythm versus, I suppose, man's imposed rhythms. Now the second mower turns again from his work and his waving arms this time seem to say, still? And, oh, it's all, I guess we're still connected, are we? Still acknowledging each other? Oh, it's a beautiful little intimate thing. And again, she seems to, um, Tracy K. Smith, to revisit that idea of, of the connection by a single long nerve. Because the second mower catches the flicker of joy rise up along those other legs and flare into another bright yes as if this joy that, that he's feeling has literally gone along an underground cable and come up through the other mower and then flared into another bright yes. So a, a sort of, it's like a crackle of total positivity and celebration of what I suppose you could call their oneness if you were going to go that far. So... Their connection now seems to be developing a life of its own. It says a bright yes that sways a moment in the darkening air. You can see this thing. You can see this connection, this positivity between them. It's, it's electric. The darkening air is what well. it's becoming night. 
which is obviously is the usual time to start work as well as outdoor work. But as we find out in the next section, their work would carry them into the better part of evening, each mowing ahead and doubling back, then looking up to catch sight of his echo, sought and held in that instant of common understanding. The garden speed of it coming out only after both have turned back to face the sea of yet and slow. Bear with me. Okay, so in the speaker's imagined scenario, they carry on working into the better part of evening. Better part, obviously, meaning the major part of of, uh, most of the evening. But also, as, as we're in a poem where words usually carry a bit more meaning, probably literally the better part of the evening. Because in this context, it's beyond normal working hours, beyond allocated time, beyond man's rules and restrictions. Their work takes longer because they make time for these electric communions. So the poem isn't about not working so much as about work allowed to follow a natural cycle, no no clock watching, no perimeters, just letting it happen to them, really. The mowers continue, and we find one of them looking up to catch sight of his echo. Now that, they really are recognising their their oneness now. I'll go on one more time. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. And this is beautiful as well. Each look is sought and held in that instant of common understanding. Sought. They want it. They're looking for it. And held. It's it's held firm and still in that instant of common understanding. They're really savouring these moments when they are gesturing and looking up and communicating. Now here, most good poems have what I call a homework line or lines, lines that need extra work, extra thought. After she talks about the instant of common understanding, we get the guard and speed of it coming out only after both have turned back to face the sea of yet and slow. And the sea of yet and slow, I'm assuming, is this work, uh, this field, this waving grass undulating like a sea. That's the image I'm getting. But they don't get the garden speed of it. Now, God's speed is obviously a sort of blessing that you give people when they set off i think literally it means may god let you prosper or something of that but it is it is a sort of blessing and so the god and speed of it i suppose also you could say if you wanted to push it some might feel there is there is god in their sort of love thy neighbor connection here and You could also say the speed of it, the way it's travelling between them on this single long nerve. Remember that phrase, that instant of common understanding, that joy that flickered between them. It's not 
a slow doll thing, this connection between them. It's it's quite crackling and fast and alive. Anyway, the garden speed of it coming out only after both have turned back to face the sea of yet and slow. It seems that whatever that garden speed, whether it's a blessing, whether it's love between them, whether it's this crackling, exciting dynamic between them, they only really feel it after they turn back to work, to face the sea of yet and slow. Why is work the sea of yet and slow? Well, yet, I think, is a word that's all about being unfinished, about something being awaited or anticipated. And slow is is a judgment. Nothing is intrinsically slow. It has to be judged as slow or, or condemned as slow. So work is this sort of waiting, challenging thing. Yet and slow unfinished and somehow not quite good enough. But when they turn back from their special moments, they bring with them that freedom and spontaneity and they see the foolishness of that anxiety about work. And I think they appreciate even more the conjoined experience that they've been having. I guess it's partly about living in the moment, about... Work often makes you think forward. I, this is not, it's not finished yet. It's going too slow. I read a book once, well, I got a third of a way through a book by a bloke called Eckhart Tolle. And it's a sort of self-help classic called The Power of Now. And it was all about the fact that don't think about the past, don't think about the future, just live in this actual moment never think about what's going to happen something you're going to do something you've done be here it was a book i always felt a bit guilty about putting a bookmark in seemed to be against his uh, essential premise anyway there's a, there's a bit of that in this and that whole thing this is what i think the homework lines mean that the experience of their special moments sort of illuminates work, changes work in in some way and doesn't allow it to, to dominate them. The epic sentence I spoke about actually ends there. And then we go into the final section. If they could... And if what glimmered like a fish were to dart back and forth across that wide, wordless distance, the day, though gone, would never know the ache of being done. Now, it's an if, again, reminding us that this is an if. But the day, though gone, would never know the ache of being done. This, again, I think, is an attitude to Work. I think the ache suggests the end of the working day. But now, work and non-work are sort of getting integrated and they're, they're just sort of being and sharing that being with others. And so there is no ache at the end of the day. I'm going to read it again because, again, their communication sounds like you ought to be able to actually see it. 
if they could, and if what glimmered like a fish were to dart back and forth across that wide, wordless distance. So this thing between them, you could almost, in her version, see it darting and glimmering and sparkling between them. If that happened, the day, though gone, would never know the ache of being done. It wouldn't feel like a hard day. It would feel like something beautiful. I remember when I learned to swim, one of the guys who helped me to learn to swim did a thing called Alexander Technique, which any actors listening will know about. And he said, the important thing about swimming is don't think I've got to get to the end of the pool. Just think every stroke I'm going to do is going to be the best stroke I can do. And if you make it to the end of the pool, great. And if you don't, it doesn't matter. Just love every stroke. And again, I thought of that when I, uh, when I read this poem. Some people say enjoy the journey, but I'm afraid in 2021, people who use the word journey as some sort of metaphor for an experience need to stop doing that. It's been used on too many reality TV shows and he's now dead. So is she talking about work here when she says... If they could, and if what glimmered like a fish were to dart back and forth across that wide wordless distance, the day they were gone would never know the ache of being done. Does she mean work or does she mean existence itself? Sort of, if you move with the natural rhythms and if you, I'm going to say, if you love each other, it seems to take the ache out of existence. You seem to be not against anything. You seem to be with everything. Okay, um, this is how the poem ends. If they thought to, or would, or even half wanted, their work, the humming human engines, pushed across the grass, and the grass, blade after blade assenting, would take forever. But I love how long it would last. Now then, this image, the humming human engines pushed across the grass, blade after blade, assenting. I can feel that dance image here now, being pushed across the grass on the grass, blade after blade, assenting. The conflict seems to have gone out of this now. These human engines, that's them, isn't it? That's the mowers with their new attitude, their um, their oneness, I suppose, with the world and each other. It makes work a pleasure now. The work begins to sound like dance. The grass itself, which was once earlier in the poem forcibly sheared, is now assenting. It's, it's, it's allowing the blade... Blade after blade assenting could refer to blades of grass or the blades of the mower, perhaps both. There's no conflict now, no no difference, if you like, between the mower and the mower. The human engine now seems to love the grass and the assenting grass seems to love it back. Something has really changed here and it's been changed by 
the poet. The poet has looked at this scene, it seems, and said, well, what about if there was connection? What about if there was love? What about if that transformed the whole attitude to the job, to work? If there wasn't two sweating, hunched men in that field, there were two gliding men occasionally stopping to wave and and communicate. So if they adopted this revolutionary approach to their task, the poet tries to imagine them into, the job would take forever, but I love how long it would last. So the job would take forever, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't be the job anymore. It would be something else. I think the it, I love how long it would last, is about this state of mind rather than the actual job. No end gaming now. No looking at the end of the pool. Enjoy every stroke and try to make it as good as it can be. And that seems to transform everything. You may have noticed I haven't actually told you the title of this poem. And I'll admit I withheld it deliberately because it's called Political Poem. Normally a title which would put me off, I must admit. But Political Poem, why is it called that? Well, because, as I say, she could have made all this happen in the poem. She could have just said there were two mowers and one wave to another in her beautiful, flowing poetry. But instead, there's a suggestion that that wasn't happening. But what if it did? And I suppose that, in a way, is what politics at its best is about. Sort of showing what is and then imagining what could be. The poem's political in in the deepest sense, I think. It says that compassionate camaraderie is to be sought and held and and work is fine as long as it doesn't get in the way of that. When you go to work, you shouldn't have to leave your humanity at the door. Get your priorities right and work will seem, well, a lot less worky. Productivity might dip a little. Everything might take a bit longer, but that's the deal. It's a sort of revolution by stealth that's being conducted by Tracy K. Smith here. One of the problems with this podcast, and there aren't many, is that obviously I have to paraphrase some incredible words. And when you paraphrase, you inevitably reduce in in some way. I hope I also illuminate, but you know what I mean. William Wordsworth said, we murder to dissect. And uh, it's a great line. And she is saying, I could say to you, and it would be, I think, true, that the poem says, love one another, transform work, don't let it transform you, don't lose yourself or each other in the rat race, live for the now, don't let doing prevent you from being. All that's in this poem, but it is deeply set in this poem, and it's expressed with fantastic subtlety, and invention, and beauty. The idea of arriving at a way of saying, love each other, love 
work. Don't let it dominate you. Be with it rather than against it. Saying it through this poem, a poem on the surface about two guys mowing a field, makes it much, much more powerful. And it means whatever she wants to say is getting in much deeper. It's like a sort of a beautiful Trojan horse that gets gently through our gates without us knowing that we're being invaded. Oh, my goodness, I stopped with that analogy and I found it exhausting. One last thing, as I said, the poem is is so has got such depth in it that it, it it's made me think of all sort of things from my life. I went to Mexico City with a woman I didn't know very well, but who went on to become my partner and the mother of my child. But we went to see some Inca pyramids just outside Mexico City. And I remember we walked halfway up. There was a, it wasn't like the Egyptian pyramids. There are steps, so you are encouraged to climb. And we got halfway up all these steps and I looked at her and I looked at the top and I said, you know, just a few months ago, I would have had to get to the top of this pyramid, but I'm I'm fine here. It's okay. I'm happy here. And I never did. And I'll probably never go there again. And I've never had pangs of regret. Oh, I should have gone to the top. It was fine. I accepted the moment I just decided to be, to share a moment with this woman I was beginning to fall in love with and not grit my teeth, not be my own sergeant major, just be. Phew, I lean and loaf at my ease. Well, I've leaned and loafed my way through this rambling, somewhat overlong podcast, but that only shows how this poem has permeated me and it. I love how long it lasted. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. Oh, and why not buy my new book, How to Enjoy Poetry by Frank Skinner. P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. See you next week. Listener.